Have you ever learned something amazing about God from a rather unexpected place or situation or conversation? I remember being in the kitchen and there I am cooking the greatest dish ever thought of. I mean, it took a genius to come up with this meal. The flavors explode in your mouth. It's uh, just this, this delicacy, this treat that sustains many of us uh, from time to time. It prevents us from getting hangry. It's really the greatest food, I would argue, uh, ever invented, ever came up with, ever uh, just designed. And it's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I mean, you might be debating whether or not it is truly the greatest meal or greatest dish that has ever been thought of. You might be thinking of spaghetti. You might think of street tacos. You might think of ox, uh, oxtail or, or a goat curry dish. You, you might have an opinion about what the greatest meal ever is, but chances are peanut butter and jelly could make the list with a little persuasion. But I'm not here to persuade you that peanut butter and jelly is really a remarkable and, in my opinion, the greatest dish ever thought of, because that's for another time. But I remember being in the kitchen, and there I am, and I'm making my peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and all of a sudden, this, this thought about God and about prayer comes into my mind. It was the Holy Spirit speaking to me, teaching me about a prayer life. Now, when you think about prayer, you, you might think, okay, prayer is, is just talking to God. In fact, Moses, when he prayed, he spoke with God almost as, uh, as we speak to our friends. And the Bible has a lot to say about prayer. And so what can a sandwich, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, teach us about our prayer lives? Well, with this new year coming upon us, 2021, Many of us have probably thought, okay, I, I'd like to accomplish these things. I'd like to, to maybe read a couple more books. I'd like to maybe uh, get more into uh, an exercise rhythm. I'd like to be a little bit more disciplined or you know, maybe uh, commit more of myself to my studies or, or to, to work or, or whatever it is. But chances are that we've said, I, I want to grow in my relationship with God. Well, how do we do that? Do we do that by just reading the Bible cover to cover as many Christians will do starting, uh, starting yesterday and beginning again today as they journey from Exodus through Revelation or maybe they commit themselves to reading one book in particular throughout the year, soaking out or, or, or trying to, to excavate these deep theological truths and learn how to apply them to their lives. There are many Christians, many of us, who have said, this year I'm going to grow closer in my relationship with God. And I would argue that the best place to begin is really in our prayer life. I think of a preacher, a pastor, who uh, has this wonderful quote, and he says that no one is greater than their prayer life. And if you think about it, prayer really is like the breath 
of our Christian experience. Communication with God really is what allows us to, to grow and to, to, uh, to be transformed because we hear him talking to us and then we respond talking back with him. Not at him, but with him. And so what can a sandwich teach us about prayer? Well, if you were to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you'd probably have some peanut butter and you would put it on some bread. But without that bread, if you just put the peanut butter and you just put it on a plate, and then if you tried to take some jelly, and you take the jelly, and if there's no bread, and you also put it on a plate, and then you try to, to have this, you, you, you try to, you finish it, you're, you're done now, and then you try to, to eat it, I mean, it's, it's messy. It's, I mean, how do you, what? You, you'd have to wear an apron. You would, you would ruin every shirt that you ever possibly could wear because peanut butter and jelly would be messy. So what allows a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to actually keep its form? Well, it's the bread. But it's funny that when we think of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, the debates are more about, is it grape jelly? Is it strawberry jelly? Is it no jelly at all? Is it honey? Is it bananas? Is it fresh blueberries? I mean, there are many ways to really make uh, a peanut butter and some type of jelly sandwich. But without the bread, the sandwich is gonna fall apart. It's gonna be a mess. But when we take two pieces of bread and we apply jelly to that, and we apply peanut butter to that, then all of a sudden what we find is we find that we have a sandwich that actually has some structure to it. And so we can then go about and we can carry it and we can walk around the house or, or we could throw it into a bag or we could wrap it around with, you know, maybe a, a cloth or a napkin and stick it into our lunch bag. And it's, it's not going to lose its form. So without the bread, the peanut butter and jelly sandwich really doesn't exist as a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Instead, it just exists as peanut butter and jelly. And what this teaches us about our prayer life is really that without some structure, without some foundation, our prayer life will be messy. You know, the disciples, when they saw Jesus, he would get up early in the morning and he would go away to a secluded place. And then he'd retire late into the evening and go back into that secluded place. And so finally, some of the disciples, perhaps one disciple, a spokesman for the disciples, saw Jesus and asked him a question. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 11 beginning in verse 1. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible. This is the question that the disciples ask because they, they see Jesus, and they Jesus is doing these amazing things. He's doing these things that no other man could ever do. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's restoring broken relationships. And then he's doing the unthinkable. He's forgiving people of their sins. 
And so the disciples are recognizing that this man, Jesus, is probably different than any other man in history. And he has this habit, he has this discipline where every morning he gets up and he goes and spends time in prayer. And every evening he goes and he spends time in prayer. And so finally, they ask him such an important question. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The disciples asked Jesus this question of, Lord, teach us to pray. Rabbi, teach us to pray. Now, you don't just ask any average individual to teach you something. If you want to learn how to edit videos, you're not going to go and ask someone that doesn't know how to edit videos. If you're going to ask someone you know, how to help you with your finances. You're not going to go ask somebody who struggles and has, you know, a a ton of, of financial problems. If you're going to ask someone for marriage advice or for relationship advice, you're not going to ask someone that doesn't have a good history or doesn't actually know what they're doing when it comes to relationships. You're going to ask someone that is proficient in in whatever it is that you're asking for help in. And so the disciples have recognized that Jesus is different and they've zeroed in his difference to his prayer life, to his connection with God. And so they ask him, Jesus, teach us how to pray. We want to learn how we too can can accomplish the same things that you're accomplishing for your kingdom. And so Jesus' response is almost startling because it's so simple. He says, when you pray, and then he gives what we know as the Lord's prayer. For many of us, whether we're new to Christianity, we're a seeker, and this is the first time that we're watching a a sermon, or we're a long-time Christian, chances are we've heard this Lord's Prayer recited. 
I remember growing up in Texas and there's a movie that is well known. It's called Friday Night Lights and it's the story of the Permian Panthers and their quest to win the state high school football championship. And I remember the scene right before the the championship game, the Permian Panthers come together and they say the Lord's Prayer. I remember hearing the Lord's Prayer recited in college and, and knowing some of the verbiage, knowing some of the words, not because I had memorized it, but because I was familiar with it through songs or, or through scenes in, in TVs or, or movies or hearing it before. It's a, it's a prayer that is probably the most well-known prayer in all of existence, whether Christian or non-Christian. And here in Luke's gospel, he kind of condenses it because his focus is not really on the structure of our prayer. His focus is more on what allows our prayer lives to stay consistent. See, this is what he says. He says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Now, with every name comes a reputation. That's why in the Old Testament, we see when an individual has almost uh, their story rewritten, when they start to embrace this better story that the Bible proposes to each and every one of us, when they lay hold of it, their name is changed. You have Jacob, which meant deceiver, and he was a hustler, and he hustled his older brother out of a birthright and and a blessing, and he hustled his father, and, and he had to leave because he was deceptive. He was a deceiver, and yet he has this experience with God And God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. And he actually becomes the father of the Israelites, of the nation of Israel. His name was changed because his reputation was transformed. And so when Jesus says, when you begin to pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, what he's saying is that we need to recognize that the God that we pray to is our God. When you pray, understand that you're praying to God, who is your God. Father, hallowed be your name. Remember the character. Remember the reputation. Remember the answered prayers. Remember the grace. Remember the mercy. Remember the consistency. When you go to God in prayer, remember who it is that you are talking to. And then he says, after that, your kingdom Come, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. This is the Lord's Prayer. But Jesus doesn't just end there because his purpose in Luke's gospel isn't necessarily to just say, this is how you should structure your prayer life. No, 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 I'm more interested in the the foundation, the structure, the 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 very bedrock that you build your prayer life on. And so after the Lord's Prayer, he goes into an illustration. He goes into an example. Now, prayer has been hotly debated, uh, especially as we move more into uh, an increasingly secular society. We have these phrases of, I'm spiritual but not religious, or, you know, uh, pursue your truth. That's not necessarily my truth, but that could be your truth. We have almost as if there's there's no sacred bedrock for us to share with one another. There's there's no concrete sacredness. There's It's almost like we're not aware that there's this great story that's happening all around us that knits us together one by one. 
And so with that, there's been this increase in prayer literature. There's been this increase in these very mystical practices where people are, are focusing on meditation or, or these, you know, maybe these practices where we start to say the same thing over and over and over again, almost to embrace this alternative reality to escape our present one. But all of these prayer practices that are often being pushed now really have one goal in mind. And that is to accomplish something. That's really to accrue favor. And so therefore, those prayer practices are legalistic. They're not rooted in the gospel. They're rooted in our own effort. Jesus, uh, wanting to combat this in Matthew's gospel, says that when you pray, don't pray like others. Don't pray to be seen by others as this religious religiously superior individual. Don't use vain repetition in your prayers. Don't think that you're heard for your many words. Don't be like others because your prayer life as a follower of Jesus is going to be rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in the grace given to us. And that's why Jesus doesn't spend a lot of time seeking to answer Uh, the question, Lord, teach us to pray, because he knows the motives of the disciples. He knows that their question really is, Lord, we want to be able to do the works that you do. And so Jesus wants them to understand that, that being Christian, following Jesus, is not about what we can do to accrue favor or what we can do to bring about good. It's about trusting that he already has done it and that by faith we lay hold of it. And so he breezes through this instruction, even though there's so much deep theological truths, deep uh, grace-filled truths in the four verses that Jesus shares with us about how to pray. He's more focused on the illustration, the motive and the, the foundation or the structure that allows our prayer lives to thrive. And so this is what he says. Suppose one of you has a friend And goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Can you imagine being woken up in the middle of the night because your friend ran out of food? I mean, it. I I can relate to the individual inside the house. Don't don't bother me. I'm sleeping. My whole family, my whole household is asleep. Why why would you come and knock on my door? It it almost seems inconceivable that you would think that you could come and wake me up so that I could go into my pantry and get you some food because you have unexpected uh, guests. And yet, notice what Jesus says. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. So it's not because of a relation of relationship, yet because of his persistence, he will give up, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So it's not because of the relationship, it's because of this persistence, which means the disciples would be hearing this and they'd be like, yeah, okay, if I if I apply these practices, if if I'm consistent and I, I just keep going and keep going and keep going and keep doing these things, then I'll be able to accomplish what I want. And and the disciples would, would hear this and, and Jesus is is almost setting the table. 
right? He's almost setting it up in such a way to where his disciples are going to be completely caught off guard by his transition. And yet, what Jesus is saying is is not untrue. In fact, it's not because of a friendship that the man from inside the house gets up. It's because the neighbor or the friend won't stop knocking on the door. And so out of maybe reluctance to just go back to sleep, he's going to get up and he's going to go into his pantry and he's going to probably bring out everything that he has. He's probably going to give more than is needed. He's not going to come to the door and say, how many guests do you have? And um, what type of food do they like? Do they have any allergies? Are they, you know... are they okay with this? Are they, uh, okay, no, no on that, okay. He's probably not gonna do that. He's probably gonna come and he's probably gonna just open the door and say, take whatever you need and then go back to sleep. So it's not because of the friendship that Jesus is saying, it's because of the persistence, which is true. When we persevere in prayer, things happen. Have you ever prayed for something and it seems like God just hasn't been answering it? And so you think, well, maybe I'm, praying wrong instead of maybe I just need to continue to pray about that. Now that's an entirely different sermon in and of itself as to why we should pray to begin with. But Jesus isn't teaching something that's wrong. In fact, he's teaching something that's consistent with the story that's being played out or or being told through the Bible. And so when he says in verse 9, so I say to you, ask and it will be given Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. That is a promise that we can take to the bank every day of the week. When we're going through something, when we have need, when 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 it seems like uh, when it seems like we just need God to come through, He tells us to seek and to keep seeking, to knock and to keep knocking, and to uh, to ask and to keep asking. But then He says this: For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it'll be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers. So notice the transition. And the disciples weren't prepared for this. Because they're thinking in terms of, okay, Jesus is a different individual. He's going about and he's doing all these amazing things. And so we want to be able to accomplish similar things. And so Jesus gives them the structure. He gives them the Lord's Prayer. And then he talks to them about persistence, which is, profound prayer truth, but then he transitions to drive home the point that prayer is really rooted in grace, not rooted in effort. Because he says this, now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus began his teaching on prayer with when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. When you pray to God, remember that he is your God. He's been merciful. He's been gracious. He's come through for you time and time Again, and if you don't think that he has, perhaps it's because you're taking the very fact that you're able to get up and move about, or you're able to get up and watch this video, or you're, you're able to reach out to a friend or a family member, or you saw them this morning. Maybe you're taking that for granted because God really is providing you with 
that. And that in and of itself is a gift of grace. But after teaching the disciples through, taking them through this journey, uh, helping them understand the components of prayer, to understand who it is that you're praying to, to seek uh, the things for that day and to not necessarily worry about the future because the future will worry about itself, to be persistent, to, to always ask, to always seek, to always knock, and you'll be given and you'll, it'll be open to you. But then he ends, he, he really uh, solidifies the main point he wants his disciples to know which is the foundation of every prayer life is much like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. See, Jesus has just created a prayer sandwich. It's one where he starts with, when you pray, say, Our Father, our Father, hallowed be your name. And then he ends with, if you being evil know how to give gifts, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit when you ask of him. He's just come full circle, beginning with God being our Father and ending with God being our Father. See, prayer is centered on our relationship with God, but not from our perspective, but from his. See, when you think that you've sinned and you've erred and 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 maybe you have, and you start to spiral out of control and your, your habits start to creep back in that you thought you had vanquished, and then you start to feel distant from God, God wants you to realize that his perspective of you has not really changed. And that's because from the foundation of the world, there was this plan for redemption. Before we had ever been born, God loved us and was already having, he was, he was, he already had this plan to give himself in our place, to give us redemption. And so for prayer, what allows our prayer lives to, to be structured and not messy is really our understanding that God is our God. He is our father. He wants a personal relationship with us. He doesn't want us to rely off these religious uh, leaders. He doesn't want us to rely off of our pastor. He doesn't want us to rely off our elder. He doesn't want us to rely off of somebody else's spiritual life. He wants us individually to recognize that he is our God. And that if we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will an all-loving, eternal other-centered, focus. God, give us the Holy Spirit, which is really himself in all of that goodness. He's going to give that to us because that's the God that he is. There's this man in, in the Bible, his name is Paul. And Paul was a persecutor of Christians. In fact, he thought that they were blasphemous because they were proclaiming a risen Savior, a God that drew near to them. And so he had these, these documents that allowed him to go and persecute any follower of the way of Jesus, anyone who was proclaiming to follow Jesus. And as he's on this road, going to this, this city of Damascus, he is met by Jesus himself. 
and there's this bright light and, and the horse that, that Paul is on rears itself and he falls off and, and there's these other guards and Paul is blinded and he's taken to, to this inn on Straight Street. And a man named Ananias is told to come and heal Paul. And Ananias is given a phrase that really solidifies Paul's transformation. Ananias is told by Jesus himself, I want you to go and meet this man named Paul, for I have appeared to him. But then Jesus says, for behold, he is praying. Now, Paul was a deeply religious man. And so he would have known about prayer. He would have been taught about prayer. He would have consistently said his prayers. He would have probably prayed three times a day at set times. And yet, here it is, Ananias being told, go and heal this man, Paul, for behold, he is praying. Now, Ananias probably, <laughs> on initial thought, said, Jesus, I, I know of this man. Uh, I know that he is persecuting Christians. You haven't said anything about him not persecuting Christians anymore. You've just told me he needs healing, and you're asking me to go. Jesus, I think you've knocked on the wrong Ananias's house. I think you need to go up the street, around the corner, and you, you need to go and talk to that Ananias, because I, I don't know, Jesus. I think that might be difficult for me, because I follow you. And that means he's going to want to persecute me. And yet, Ananias gets up and he goes. Why? Because when Jesus told Ananias that, behold, he is praying, Paul was praying, Ananias knew that it meant that God knew, or that Paul knew he was praying to God who was his God. He knew that he had just been adopted into the family of Christ. He knew that he was speaking to a God that was different than any other possible, conceivable God. A God that was willing to draw so near to us that he would give himself in the person of his son. And so Ananias now knows that Paul's whole perspective of God has been changed. In fact, Paul has been born again. He's been transformed by grace. And the promise that Paul would later go on to articulate in Romans chapter 8, where we are not given into a spirit of bondage, but a spirit of freedom, and God gives us the Holy Spirit that then starts to cry out from within us, Abba, Father. See, the thing about prayer is that when we understand that prayer is really rooted in a relationship with God, that it's not rooted in the words that we say, so it doesn't matter how long our prayers are or how short they are. It doesn't matter if we talk to God like we talk to a regular individual because Moses spoke face to face with God as man speaks to a friend. It doesn't matter if we, if we stumble in our prayers because our prayer life is not to accrue favor and it's not to have these super polished prayers. It's to know who it is that we're talking to. And when we know who it is that we're talking to, when we know that God is our God, that he is our Father, then when we pray, it changes everything. 
It allows us to, to say short prayers and long prayers. It allows us to persevere. It allows us to, to say, Lord, I'm not getting up from my knees because you have told me to seek you persistently. And so I'm asking. And I'm asking it in your name. When we understand that God wants us to approach him in prayer as our God, our personal friend, Savior, and Lord, it changes everything. In fact, it allows all of the messiness of life that informs our prayer lives, all the things that we're going to pray about, all the, the struggles and the hardships, all the praises and the thanksgiving, all of that is is messy. And yet, Jesus shows us that what allows us to stay structured and disciplined in our prayer lives is really the simple, profound truth that we are talking to a God that is our God. Not our pastor's God, not our friend's God, not our prayer warrior's God. No, He is our God. And so we get to talk to Him as our God. And so this year, 2021, clean slate, it doesn't matter how messy things get because we have a God that has written a better story and that story is for eternity. And so we don't have to worry about the struggles, even though they will come. Jesus says, if they persecuted me, what makes you think that they won't persecute you? Jesus said that it's, it's not going to be easy. We live in a world that is, that's broken. And yet, we have a God that's our God. There's a quote that has really shaped my prayer life over the years. And it's from Edward McKinney Bounds. And he says this, Prayer that creates powerful praying is prayer that is centered on a powerful person. And Jesus taught his disciples that our prayer lives are built on God being our God. Happy Sabbath, church.